One of the challenges, I don't know if I've ever expressed this much um, here at Dwell, but as you'll get to know me a little bit more, one of the challenges that I have when I'm speaking, and I've got quite a few, uh, but one of the challenges that I have while I speak is I often have so much stuff that I want to share, I can end up talking too long. And so I've been thinking for uh, many hours now how much I need to cut. So at one point, if it's like being too much, you can just like go like this to me, and I'll, I will respond that that's the Holy Spirit, and we'll move forward. But uh, I have a lot to share because I think we're, we're covering such a deep, rich um, topic this morning that I think is vital for all of us to grasp, um, no matter how long um, or if we've really begun a journey with Jesus. This is so vital to um, what I think is a powerful and truly powerful, and I, I use that word hesitantly because it carries a lot of connotations and denotations that like, 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 what does it mean to be powerful, right? Like this world strives for power. But what does it look like to be a powerful person of faith in Jesus Christ? And so um, we're going to examine that, but I want to do it in light of the context of what we're doing here uh, beginning last week. If you were with us last Sunday, or perhaps if you weren't able to be with us last Sunday, I know we were just talking with a lot of people here. There's a lot of sickness going around, so... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray that none of you get sick today, uh, but um, um, please, if you haven't had the opportunity to catch up on the podcast, listen to the podcast. Last week, Kylie um, started and kicked off a six-week series that we have uh, begun called A People on Mission, and I think uh, Gabe's going to bring up a slide there that's going to show this. Uh, but over the course of this series, we're going to take some time to look at what God is calling us as Dwell Church to be and to do in 2020, but also beyond that. Uh, and a lot of this is really shaped around what we are saying is our vision and our mission. And, and you may think, well, Josh, you and Kylie are new to the church. Are you changing this, this and are we going to be drastically different? The real answer is no. The foundation and the core of who Dwell Church has been, currently is, and will continue to be, I believe, is rooted on such a great foundation that, that it won't feel very different uh, from what Dwell Church has been, for those of you that are long-timers. Some of the new-timers new will be like, all right, all right, whatever, this is all cool, whatever. Uh, but I say this also is that what we have done is we've kind of just reshaped it a little bit and added a little bit of our flavor to that to emphasize some things that God has placed on our heart that we knew uh, going into our transition to lead Dwell Church, these were things God was calling us to do wherever he placed us. And so over this um, series, we're going to examine these things. And, and last week, Kylie kind of kicked it off um, really speaking to um, our vision and our mission. And I'm going to get out of the way so you can all see this real quick. No feedback, no feedback. Okay, good. All right. This is the vision statement that um, Kylie uh, showed us last week, and this is something that we've worked on, we've prayed on, and you'll, you'll hear and see that it's very familiar to those of you that have been around Dwell for a while. But our vision is to see the transformation of the city of Los Angeles. Now, let me pause there and say that's huge, right? That's a big goal. But we believe it's possible. How? Through a missional movement of believers serving and showing the love of Jesus in our communities. And so there's a lot to unpack there, but in essence, as we as God's people do what God's called us to do and be the people that he's called us to be, we will have a greater impact because it isn't just us that's making that impact. It's the Holy Spirit working through us to do that. So this is the big picture. This is the vision. And the next slide is going to show our mission. Like This is how we're going to accomplish it. All right, This is how we're going to accomplish the transformation of the city. And we're going to do that um, it says, our mission is to grow in our love for God and our love for others through the practice of the spiritual disciplines, intentional acts of love towards our neighbors, and adherence to Jesus' command 
to make disciples. And that last little segment is the only part that probably slightly differs from something you may be familiar with or not. Um, disciple making, I had to move past that speaker quickly. Disciple making is one of Kylie and mine, my greatest passions. Grammar's not one of them, but, um, but disciple making is. And when we speak about disciple making, we're talking about more than just our own spiritual development and growth as disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. We believe that the call of God upon every believer is not only to grow into that uh, um, discipleship or deeper spirituality and relationship with God, but to also bring others along with us on that journey. And so we are called, all of us, to be disciple makers. And so truly my formation as a disciple of Jesus Christ really reaches a level of maturity when I'm also discipling other people. So it's not just about what I can receive from God and how I can grow in that relationship, but it's who has God given me influence over in my life and how can I help them grow in their relationship with God as well. This isn't just the responsibility of leaders in a church or pastors, and that's sometimes what um, a lot of churches become guilty of, is that they leave the maturing of people or the disciple-making to the professionals. Now, as a Christian, I'm still responsible for that, so just because I serve as a pastor here at Dwell doesn't mean that I'm just trying to get you guys to do my job. So as a believer, my responsibility is to bring people into this relationship and help them grow in their, in their relationship with the Lord. And so how that might look for me um, outside of church would look very similar to how it's going to look for you. So, like, my responsibility here is a, in the church as a pastor is to help people, to equip them and prepare them, or to train them is another word that we might use, in order to equip you in order to do this task. So, that's the, the, the distinction between you and I here, or Kylie and you here, is that it's not that you're going to be doing something that um, uh, we should be doing, but the reality is, is we're, our responsibility, our role is to equip and prepare you to fulfill what Jesus would call, or what the scriptures call the Great Commission. And we're going to talk a lot about that um, in the future. But today, as we, we look to um, kind of the fleshing out of, of our mission, Last week, Kylie introduced it with this idea of what's called the Great Commandment. And you may be familiar with this or not, but the Great Commandment is something that um, Jesus emphasized probably at the heart uh, of his teaching. Really, if you were to say, what is the core of the mission of Jesus, and it should be the core of the mission of Dwell Church, and it's this. It's found in Mark 12, 28 through 31, and it says this. Um, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Uh, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked of them, of all the commandments, which is the most important. So Jesus, that's what, this is very common in Jesus' day. People that were experts in the law, people that studied the law of the Jewish people that God had given to the people through Moses, they would sit around and debate what it meant. It was very, if you've ever met um, a rabbi or a Jewish person, Debate and dialogue is part of the culture. Now, those of you who know this, I am ethnically Jewish. Like, my dad is born and raised a Jew. He was bar mitzvahed, raised here in L.A., and then in the 70s, something happened besides drugs and rock and roll, um, which did happen to him, and he'll tell you about it, but he found Christ, and so he found Jesus as his Messiah. So it totally transformed his life. Um, But if you know any Jewish people or you know the Jewish culture, dialogue and debate, especially those that come out of Europe, is is really a heartbeat of the Jewish uh, people. There's this old saying that goes, if you have two Jews, you have three opinions. Uh, Because Jewish people love to debate and dialogue. And so this goes all the way back to Christ. So they're debating and dialoguing what does the law teach. And so this guy now is really trying to 
as, as Kali so eloquently communicated last week, trying to trick Jesus into giving an answer. And so he does. He gives an answer. He says, right? He says, um, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he takes this other law that was in Leviticus, and it was um, a well-known law, but it wasn't as significant or command as the first one. This first one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is like the foundation of the Jewish faith. It's called the Shema. And they recite it every day, and actually they're instructed to teach it to their children and to say it, and they're going and they're coming throughout the day because the Jewish people were to be reminded constantly to themselves and to those around them that they worshipped one God, and he was the one and the true and the only God. And so because he was that, he was worthy of everything, to worship him with all that they are. And so then Jesus takes this other law that many people may or may not know about or would, would maybe know about but didn't value as much, and he elevates it. And he brings it up to equivalent to this first command that all Jews believe was the greatest law. And he says, and the second is like it, or the second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself, as you would love yourself. And then he said, there is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus right there shapes the heartbeat of what it means to be a person of faith in him and a person of God. Now, this is really interesting. According to the, like, the rabbis, so like, again, they like to debate and they like to dialogue and everybody's got an opinion. Uh, the law of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew people would call it the, the Hebrew scriptures, but the, the law contains 613 commands given by God through Moses. Now, I, I read a lot about this again because I, I wanted to remember the exact number. I knew it was over 600, but I couldn't remember the exact number. And so I did some more research, and it was 613. But everybody always goes, nobody can really tell you what those 613 are. They actually say there's 611, uh, but the, the two extra are the first two parts of the Ten Commandments that people don't say are direct commands, but they're the ones that talk about God being one true and only God. And so they make it a command, and they say it's 613. And so all the rabbis say there's 613 commandments that are given to them. And um, these are, um, are all recorded in what we would say are the first five books of the Old Testament. The, the Jewish people would call these books the Torah or the law. And so what Jesus does in this moment, he takes these 600 plus laws and all these writings also of the Hebrew prophets. So like the, in the Jewish mindset, they have a different way of approaching the scriptures than Christians. So Christians will say... I don't have a physical Bible this morning. Does anybody have a physical Bible this morning? Are we all products of our generation? All right. Grab your digital Bible right now. and just. So they, what they would do is they would say, the whole Christians would say, this is all God's word and it's all equivalent and it's the truth. And so what the Jewish people would say is when they approach their scriptures, they would say, well, it's all God's law and it's all from God. It's all inspired, but certain parts are more inspired than others. And when it comes to the most important, they would say that the writings of Moses or the Torah, the first five books of what we would say is the Old Testament, are the most inspired. They're the, they're the closest to the heart of God is what they would say. And then they would say like the prophets, so the writings of the prophets, they're important and they're from God, but they're not as important. And so they kind of categorize them. But what Jesus does is he groups them all together and basically says this. He says, all of these, all of these laws, both of the, of the laws of Moses and the writings and the instructions and the teachings of the prophet, they can be summed up in these two commands. And in another gospel, it's recorded this way. It's like, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. Basically, if you fulfill these two commandments to love God with all that you are, 
your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as you, as you love yourself, you're, you're fulfilling all the laws of God. So not only did Jesus instruct his followers to obey these two commands, but he actually modeled them out and how to live them out as a human being. And this morning, we're going to take some time right now just to focus on that first command. What does it look like for us as people that follow the one true God? Or maybe you're on that journey discovering who God is. But wherever we fall on that spiritual spectrum this morning, we're going to look at what does it look like, at least according to Jesus' teachings and examples, to love God with all that we are. So... um, Let's, um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 15, and I'm going to read some verses there. Um, And we're going to read some of Jesus' teachings of what it looks like to love God. Um, And as you're getting there to John chapter 15, I just want to kind of introduce it with this idea here, is that many followers of Jesus, we miss the importance that Jesus has placed upon the practice of, of abiding with him, spending intentional time with him, and as it relates to showing our love towards him. And in John chapter 15, Jesus calls us, all of his followers, if you identify as a follower of Jesus, a Christian, or however you label yourself, he calls all of us to live an intentional life of communion with himself. In John 15, verses 1 through 8, It it begins, and this is Jesus speaking, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it may even be more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, we could spend weeks just dissecting this particular passage because there's so much richness in there, but this morning we're just going to focus on the heart of what Christ is trying to communicate to his people. And it begins with this idea or this correlation that he's beginning to make here. And he's made elsewhere throughout the Gospels as you read them and you hear Jesus' teaching. He begins to bring this correlation between our love for God and this idea of abiding or dwelling or remaining in him. Basically spending time with him. And now when you think about this and you step back from just like what we might call a spiritual perspective for a moment. And you think about people in your life that you love. Could be... Your mom? I mean, who doesn't love their mom, right? <laughs> oh, all right, sorry if you don't look. Like sorry, sorry. All right, all right. Uh, could be your dad, all right? <laughs> or it could be a significant other. It could be a sibling. It could be a dear friend that God has brought into your life. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily, and I, and I want to exclude just the idea of romantic love, but someone you deeply care for in your life. And when you deeply care for somebody, you really want to spend time with them. 
Uh, think about uh, those of you that are married or maybe you have been married. During that dating time, I mean, you want to do all that you can to be in that person's presence. I can think about this time. It, it wasn't Kylie, uh, but years ago, <laughs> years ago, and my love for Kylie is without question. But years ago in college, there was this young girl that I was really interested in, and we had one class together. But I was very strategic to make sure that I accidentally bumped into her around campus as much as I could because I just wanted to spend time with her, right? Like those people that you have feelings for, and, and you realize, those of you that have had relationships of significance, whether they're romantic or not, know that love moves beyond just those initial feelings. It becomes deeper where you're truly concerned and care for the benefit and the well-being of that person. You, you really, when you love somebody, at least from a biblical perspective or a, a divine perspective, you understand that love moves beyond just those feelings and emotions. And those are great, but it moves to the point where you really do want to see the best for that person, even if it means that you have to sacrifice in order for them to have more. And so, like, when you, when, you, when, you, when you move to that, like, you have those feelings or those, those desires to see somebody succeed and, and you truly do love them, you want to spend time with that person. You know, it's not always possible, but, but you, you want to deeply immerse yourself in their presence and they in yours. And this is the heartbeat of what Christ is calling his church to. It's like, so, like, it's, it's hard for a lot of people when we talk about love for God, and maybe for guys it's a little bit harder, because when we think about love, it just tends to be mostly romantic in our lives when we think about love. Uh, and when you have kids, at least my experience is for me that it, it shifted. It's like it's a different kind of love that you have for your kid than you have for your, for your spouse. Um, but, but even still, no matter if you've had either of those experiences or not, there are people in your life that you have deep care and concern for and you want to spend time with them. And this is the type of love that God is calling us to express towards him. And it happens truly by spending time with them. And when we commit our lives to be lives of dedication unto Christ and his ways, the only natural response that brings us into a place of intimacy and what I will argue in just a few moments, minutes is a life of power can only happen when we abide in Christ. Jesus not only instructs his, his followers, the, the 12 and those that were beyond that and even us today to be intentional about remaining in him and, 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 and him in us, but he gives us examples through his own life of abiding with the Father. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, and, and I'm just using Mark this morning as an example because we're, we're using Mark kind of as the starting point with, with this great commandment that he gives his followers. But we see throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus continually withdrawing from people, from ministry, from daily life activities, and all the demands that were upon him to be alone with the Father and to pray. Jesus' solitude and silence is a major theme within the Gospels. If you study this in your Bible, you'll soon discover that this time with God is actually the secret to Jesus' peace and power and effectiveness in his life and his ministry. Jesus lived a particular rhythm. Uh, he lived with a particular rhythm to his life that was essential to his own well-being Yes, Jesus had to be concerned about his own well-being. His own faith life, Jesus lived a life of faith or dependence upon the Father in the same way that we depend upon him, and in his ministry or service to other people. 
None of it would have been effective or empowered had he not taken the time to be with the Father. He had a way of life with his Father, and his holiness, his wholeness, became a part of his own life. The Father's holiness and the, the Father's wholeness became a part of Christ's life as he abided with him. And as a human being, Jesus proved that he was and is the unique Son of God by living in continual and perfect oneness or harmony with the Father. Now, that's our goal as, as, as followers of Jesus is like to live in that. It's, it's challenged on the reality is if, if you have kids or you have a job or you have a friend or anybody, if you spend any time outside of just yourself, you get into conflict with people. So it's hard to live continually. But that's our goal. That's what we strive for, right? And because this is the model that Jesus calls us to and he expressed with his own life as an example. Like you can look, I'm, I'm going to give you a ton of references and maybe I'll just like post them on Facebook or something today. But in Mark 1, 9 through 13, it talks about Jesus going out on a pilgrimage to be baptized. And he spent 40 days in the, in the desert in prayer and silence and solitude, fasting, meditating on scripture and then being tempted by the enemy. It's like he was led, it actually tells us in the scriptures that he was led to this. After his water baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into this season of solitude, silence, meditation, prayer, fasting, and in, in, in consuming the scripture. In Mark 1, 35, uh, it says early in the morning, Jesus had a custom of going out into lonely places to pray. And throughout Mark, there's other times where it says that he went to a lonely place to pray, or he went out on a retreat on a boat with his disciples. And a storm came, but he went out initially to try and find rest and peace. Throughout his ministry, and even leading up to his crucifixion, where do we find Jesus at the, where he knows it's about to, to culminate? His life, ministry, and experience is about to culminate with his crucifixion. And what does he do? He spends that time, that night before, in prayer with his, some of his closest friends. These examples that we find in Mark's gospel shows us that Jesus could not have gone to the cross and been risen from the dead without his continual deep abiding into the Father's love. He could not have carried out his world-transforming ministry without a profound lifestyle of prayer. Now, there's a bunch of spiritual disciplines, and actually, I'm going to jump ahead to that slide, uh, Gabe. Um, and these are, this is not an exhaustive list. And when I say spiritual disciplines, these are habits and or practices um, that should be a part of the Christian life. Um, um, and, and this is, this, I don't want you to be overwhelmed, first of all, because this is not the full list, because there really isn't a list. Like, these are some of them that are shown in scriptures and that Jesus talks about and others talk about. But these are some of the spiritual disciplines um, that should be a part of our lives. But one of the foundational, and I would argue the foundational one, the one that brings us into the greatest understanding of who God is and his character and, and what God has for us is this discipline of prayer. It's foundational. And this is why we are calling and inviting, I should say. We are inviting people to join us in prayer at 915. And, 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 and there's multiple things I want to say about prayer. But this is the foundational because through prayer, it's not like we're trying to convince God. Like sometimes our, our thoughts on prayer are just we got to try and convince God. God to do this one thing or to, to do a miracle or to show up in a particular way. But really through the process of prayer, what God is trying to do most of all is not necessarily change our circumstance. And he does want to change our circumstances. But what God's wanting to do in the midst, in the heart of prayer is to change us. 
And it happens because in prayer, what happens is God begins to infuse us with a greater understanding of his perspective, and he begins to lift and help us see that our perspective is sometimes limited. But that only comes through the discipline of prayer. And so what happens is as we spend time with God and we spend time in his presence through prayer, and part of prayer is sitting and being silent, sometimes in solitude, all by yourself, but is sitting there and just listening for the voice of God, even if it sounds like silence. But in those moments, seeking out and desiring to hear from God and his perspective. And it's in those moments that God begins to infuse within us his perspective on our lives, on our circumstances, the challenges that we're facing. Because the challenges that we face are real and they're difficult and they're hard. And and just in the same way, the challenges that Christ faced were real, difficult, and hard. But he needed to have the Father's perspective in order to accomplish what the Father had called him to do. And we in our lives have been called to do a lot. You've been called to do a lot. And what God is calling you to do can only happen if you're infused with his perspective and his power. And that only comes when we spend time abiding in him. Let me, I want to read something that I just, I just love. Um, okay, so... Earlier in Mark chapter 1, and this is just to give you a little insight into how vital it is to be with the Father. In Mark chapter 1, there's an interesting statement about Jesus' teaching. And it's at the very beginning of his ministry. It's in Mark chapter 1, verse 22. And and actually, Topher and I had a discussion about this um, a while back. But yeah, we did. Yeah, he's like, oh, he's shocked. He's like, oh. But listen to this. It says, the people were amazed at, it says his teaching, but really Jesus' teaching. And it says, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So Topher and I had this really kind of like interesting conversation. We began to kind of study a little bit. What does it mean to teach with authority? And I've come to an answer, Topher. The answer is it doesn't matter. (laughs) Because there's a lot of debate on what it means in in one sense. It doesn't really matter what authority actually means. Because that's where a lot of like the people that are smarter than Topher and I debate and discuss. Okay, maybe smarter than me. Maybe not Topher. Uh, But I I found this interesting comment uh, by a guy named Ronald Kernigan. Ronald Kernigan is a commentator. He wrote a a commentary on the book of Mark. He used to teach down the street here or up the road here at Fuller Seminary. Um, And listen to what he says about this particular uh, statement. He goes, at first glance, that statement that Jesus taught with authority might be taken as a description of his style. It could be a way of saying that Jesus was a dynamic and a compelling speaker. As the story unfolds, though, it is not the way he spoke that is important. It is what happens when he taught. In this instance, in Mark 1, his presence provoked a confrontation with the demonic. And you can see that in the passage as you read through Mark. Jesus cast the evil spirit out, and with an appalling convulsion, the evil spirit obeyed him. And after that exorcism, Mark repeats the reference to Jesus' amazing authority. And then he goes on to say, Jesus' teaching was much more than a collection of novel or encouraging ideas. I want to pause there just for a second. There are so many people inside the church and outside of the church that really value the teachings of Jesus as moral code or a new ethic that he introduced, that it's a great way to live. And that is partially true and I say partially true because it's true but it's only part of the story on what Jesus was doing through his teachings and I love what 
Uh, Ron Kernigan says here, he says, so Jesus' teaching was much more than a collection of novel or encouraging ideas. He says, it was an exercise of power. The powers of darkness perceived in Jesus' teaching a challenge to their dominion or to their authority. The authority of Jesus was displayed as those powers were first silenced and then banished, those evil powers. And he says, what distinguishes Jesus' teaching is this combination of both word and event or action. There was, there was transformative um, miracles, for a lack of better words, that happened when Jesus taught. And I think this is so true in its description of God's word for us today. Because through the scriptures, Jesus is still teaching us, right? And it's not just a great moral code to follow. But the reality is that there is power behind what Jesus' words bring to our lives. And the result isn't just that, oh, we have this new enlightened thought or understanding about God or goodness or holiness or whatever you want to label it. But what it is is when we trust that teaching. And that's what it means to have faith, is that we trust in this teaching of Jesus. I may not understand it. It may go contrary to everything that I, that I think, or, or it may go in contrary to everything that I even feel. But when I trust in it, and I actually apply it to my life, what is the power, or what is the transformative power of that word upon my life? And that the words of Jesus, yes, spoken 2,000 years ago, still can transform and change my life today. And see, the key to Jesus' powerful or authoritative teaching wasn't just in his divinity, right? So yes, Jesus was divine. He was and is the Son of God, completely and holy, and he, and, he, and he will never change from that capacity. But the scriptures teach us and show us that Jesus operated in his earthly ministry completely and totally, 100% in his humanity, as a human being, as a man like me, or as a human being like you. The difference was is that he lived this life in unison with the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The power or the authority that came to Jesus' teaching wasn't just the words that were said, but it was the power that he received from the Spirit of God himself to proclaim them and to believe them and to teach them and to see the power of God transformed through them. It was authenticated. We see it here in this particular passage by these evil spirits freaking out and being cast away. That it wasn't just talk about a great way of living or the God way of living. It was authoritative and it was transformative and it was powerful. And that kind of authority and power that Christ had came as a result of the time in which he spent with the Father. You and I can walk in that power. The same Holy Spirit that filled and empowered Christ fills and empowers his church. And the key to unlocking that power in our lives, according to John, would be abiding in him, right? So spending that intentional time with the Lord. And are those principles back up? Can you put those disciplines back up again? This is how we abide. Now, there are other ways that we can do this, but um, there's certain ones that we really need to incorporate in our life because we would never do them. We never would like to do them, right? Like for most of us, prayer sucks. It's hard, it's challenging, it's difficult, and we would never intentionally choose to have prayer as a part of our life. And that's all the more reason on why we need to do it. Because what it does is it speaks to like, like so like there's, in a lot of the gospels and Jesus' teachings, but also in the writings of Paul, there's this idea of two forces at work within humanity, right? There's what Paul often calls is the flesh. And the flesh is just essentially your natural human tendencies. 
that are really, most of the time, against the ways of the Lord. But for the Christian, because we have faith in what Christ has done on the cross, we believe that his death was liberating and freeing and empowering for those that trust in him. It frees us now from those, so those tendencies will still be there, but we no longer have to give in to them. Like the Apostle Paul says, it's like you were uh, being pulled by a chain and every temptation that came your way because of sin, it pulled on you. And it pulled on you and you couldn't give, 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 you couldn't uh, get away from it. You had to give into it. But now because Christ has come and he's like liberated us now. He's freed us from this temptation and sin that's pulling on us. So temptation and sin will still encroach our lives. It will still come up to us. But now because of what Christ has done, we're not only freed, but he's given us the Holy Spirit to pull us in the pathway towards God, right? So like he's given us the ability to not only have freedom, but to stay free. And it's that spirit-empowered life that he calls us to. And it happens when we spend time with the Father. Because what it does is it makes our lives, our whole beings, in alignment with him. And the more that we're in alignment with the Father, the more our lives will look like Jesus. And we can't just hope that by osmosis we're going to become more like Jesus. We've got to be intentional to spend time to saturate our lives in his presence. And I think the, the, the biggest challenge that comes with living in a city like Los Angeles, the hardest thing is that we're, we're constantly busy. We're constantly going and we constantly have things to do. And one of the hardest things to do is the fourth one down on the left side. So like these... Um, uh, principles or these spiritual disciplines on the left, they're called, you could categorize these ones on the left as um, uh, disciplines of um, like chastity or disciplines of abstinence, meaning that these are things that you're, you're choosing. So in solitude, you're choosing to get away from people to be by yourself and with God. In silence, you're choosing to shut up and listen, to, to not give. In fasting, you're intentionally choosing to give up food, or it can be other things in your life, but food is traditionally what is given up in fasting in order to partake in spiritual food. All right, Sabbath, and this is one of the hardest ones for anybody in America, but especially those of us that live in a mega city. Because we're constantly going, we're constantly doing, we're constantly being, we never take the time to stop. It's so interesting, the last two times that I've spoken here, it happened again last night. The first, two, two weeks ago when I spoke, the night before, the Lord just basically said, hey, everything you've been doing has been great, but I got something different the next day. He just totally said, this is what's going to take place tomorrow on your sermon. And I'm like, all right. And I think I told you guys, I said, I'll see you in the morning, Lord. And, and I got up early and I kind of wrote down some notes and just said, all right, Lord, you got to help me. Um, last night I went to bed after I had kind of, like it was about midnight. I, I heard Junia cry at about 11.45, let a little cry. And so I said, all right, I'm going to pause to see if she's really going to get up. I was about ready to go to bed. Um, so finally, I, 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 she wakes up. I put her back down to sleep, and I go to bed. And as soon as I lay down, the Lord just starts downloading things to me. And I realized last night I hadn't taken time recently just to pause and hear what the Lord wanted me to say this morning. I, like, I, I was on the right track, and there was only just a few tweaks that he, but it was like, as soon as I stopped and went into bed, I had the moment just to be still. And it was in that stillness that the Lord started to download things that I needed to know for today's message. And it all came from things I studied and I had been praying about, and I've been thinking about this message for like almost two weeks now. And so I'm like, all right. And I think that was just like an illustration for me, and I hope it's an illustration for you, is that you're busy. I know you're busy. You're living life in a big city, and you've got relationships and work and, and just things. 
But the gospel calls us to a countercultural lifestyle. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we prepare to close here. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to a countercultural lifestyle or a countercultural set of values. In our culture, in American culture, being busy is a good thing. It means you're not lazy, right? Our culture doesn't value laziness. And so anytime you're not doing anything, people think that you're lazy. <laughs> it's just part of our culture. Our culture values success. And success in a capitalistic culture, and I'm not placing any good value or bad value on capitalism. I'm just saying success in a capitalistic culture comes to those who are hungry, to the hustler, the hard worker, the person that will work overtime all the time. Especially if those of you that are involved in the entertainment industry know you you got to keep going. You got to keep you got to keep hustling and putting yourself out there and, and making connections and networking. Even your downtime is go 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 or any type of business that is like that. And the gospel calls us to something that is so contrary to our culture today, and that just means to stop, to cease from activity, in order to focus focus solely on the Lord. seems impossible. I will argue with you today this fact. And let me just say, I speak from experience too. Like many of you know this, years ago, I planted a church in Burbank, just to the north of us here. And at the time, our church was small, about even a little smaller than here at Dwell. And when we started, we didn't have a lot of financial resources. Uh, we were just friends getting together. And so I worked outside of the church. I had been working actually here in Santa Monica, at a law firm, right at the water garden. I was there, and I was working full-time, and I was also starting a new church with a group of friends. And during that season, you could say, oh, this is awesome and commendable. Look at how hard you worked. But you know what? I looked back at that time of my life, and I didn't take time to just pause and truly rest or Sabbath with the Lord. Because Sabbath is more than just pausing. I could teach, and Kylie could teach all day long on Sabbath. There's so much to it. It's more than just stopping. But the first part to Sabbathing, or resting fully as God has called us to is just to cease from work and activity. So you can't even begin to Sabbath until you stop that first part. And I look back at that time and I look back and for like six years, I was thinking this, like most nights I had between four and six hours sleep, most nights. That was it for six years. And I wasn't 19 or 20 when that is like possible. <laughs> I was in my 30s. And I didn't realize how, and when, I, when I finally went from being by vocation to just solely working for the church, it happened only, the Lord made that happen. He made me lose my job. Uh, that's another long story. But I lost, and I, I started sleeping like 10 and 12 hours, and I'm like, in my whole life, I've never slept 10 and 12 hours. And I realized that in the midst of that grind that I was doing for God, I hadn't done what he has called me to do in Sabbath. My body, my soul was exhausted. And I will argue with you this truth and this reality. See, the reason why Sabbath is so vital and so important as a spiritual discipline is because it says, I'm going to trust God instead of trusting myself to make things happen. And that's so hard because all we want to do is trust self to make things happen, especially those of us that are smart and gifted and talented. But the lifestyle that Christ calls us to is a life of self-sacrifice when it comes in conflict with the values of the kingdom. As Christians, what we're saying is, I'm, I'm doing my best 
to live by the values of the kingdom instead of the values of this world. And I believe that God, when you do that in faith, will honor that and he will bless that. And he, this is why we, we also tithe, right? It's ridiculous to give 10% of your money away. I was like, how am I supposed to, you know, think, think about it. It's expensive to live and all these things, but we do it because we're saying that my job and all these other things aren't where I'm getting really provision. My provision is coming from the Lord. And so I'm going to trust that he's, he's going to meet my need. And it's the same principle behind Sabbath. It's like, yeah, I can go out to this networking event or I can hustle hard or I can just take my Sunday and go do all the things that I didn't get to do on Saturday for my errands because I was hustling for work and all those other things. And, and, Sabbath is so vital because it forces us to trust God. And that's what God wants to, us to understand is that we got to trust him. That's what the life of faith is. And this is how, right? Like Sabbath also allows us to spend this time abiding in him, to being with him, to be rejuvenated by him, to be restored by him, to be empowered by him, to, to do all the things that he's calling us to do, whether it's career-wise, educationally, or beyond that. Would you just stand with me? I'm going to pray and just turn this over to Jackie. Lord, we thank you. We love you. And we call upon you today. And I pray, Lord, in the areas that you have convicted us or that you have challenged us this morning, I pray, Lord, that we might respond to you. Lord, have your way. In Christ's name. Amen. I got a few things to share just real quick. Number one, early uh, this year, maybe even the end of last year, the Lord began to call me personally to recenter my life around prayer. And it's hard. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's hard. But I have found that the more that I set aside the time to do it, and the more that I'm doing it, the more excited I am about it. And that excitement doesn't necessarily come quickly, but it, but it comes. Because what happens is it becomes deeper than just asking for things, but it becomes a time of great intimacy and awareness of God's presence. And he moves. And so I want to challenge you to do that. Secondly, this Wednesday, and, and you may not have grown up with this tradition, but this Wednesday begins the, the season of Lent. And Lent is 40-some days, about 47 days before Easter. And traditionally, the church has practiced Lent in order to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the resurrection. And, and during that season, you identify with the sufferings of Christ. And so it becomes an inward, introspective season. And traditionally, a lot of churches uh, and ministries fast during that season. Sometimes they fast meat or they pick chocolate or whatever their vice might be. Um, and I want to challenge you that maybe during this season of Lent, which begins on Wednesday, whether you've participated in this or not in the past, to maybe explore the option of doing that this, this season. Um, there's a couple ways to practice Lent, and I can talk to you about that. It's pretty simple, but maybe take something to fast so you can incorporate this idea of fasting or abstaining from something that's a pleasure is tip traditionally what you would fast. Um, and sometimes even a need, like food, right? Not 40 days of no food. I'm not asking you to do that. But also um, the other components to, to Lent that um, are kind of proactive are incorporating prayer, right? Serving. And giving, and especially giving to those in need. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, and many you know, beyond that, Koros has provided some food, and there's some bagels back there again. So there's bags, and there's like tons of bagels. So please, get your carbs on. Um, but the, the ministries that he's, and the organizations that he's working with are looking for volunteers. 
like six, seven days a week. So you can talk to me or Gabe or Koros, any one of us, and we'll get you connected. If you have an opportunity, maybe during this uh, Lenten season, you can just take upon this discipline of serving and or giving to those in need. So I want to challenge you with those things this, this morning. It begins Wednesday, um, and I would say, like, you can do it two ways. You can do it for 40 days straight and end on Palm Sunday, or you can do it for every day but Sunday, and this is kind of the way I do it. You fast whatever you do. You can enjoy what you're fasting on the Sundays. On Sundays, you can, it's kind of because Sunday's seen as a celebration day because uh, it's the day we recognize the resurrection. And so you're not supposed to fast or to abstain from something on a day of celebration. So fast every other day but Sunday, and you end on Easter. And that's the way I do it is like, because I like to enjoy what I might be fasting, whether it's social media or carbs or something else. You know, I don't know. I haven't even thought about what I'm going to do this year. And so... Um, Maybe think about that this semester, incorporating, and, and I challenge you as you do this in faith, not out of ritual or tradition, but use this as a 40-day season to draw closer to Christ and intimacy and see the power that you walk away with. Because I believe that that's what God's calling us to as individuals and also as a community of believers. So I pray that you go in the name and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the reality of who he is saturates everything that you do. Love you guys. See you Sunday.